podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. boys and girls welcome to the two-footed podcast today is monday the 6th of september and we're brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor liberty shield liberty shield is a vpn provider virtual privacy network allows you to go online change your location access things like american netflix or anything else that you're geo-blocked from while also keeping your data safe check out libertyshield.com and use the code eplvpn to get 20 percent off at checkout we're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do remember to check out both the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Download the Etsy app onto your phone. Search EPL Index, search Anfield Index. Lots of merch available to you there. Right, folks. Hope you all had a wonderful weekend. Not such a good weekend if you live in Guinea. So anybody who does live in Guinea, uh, stay safe. Not a good situation with the military coup. Not a good situation with the Guinea national team. And Moroccan national teams currently hold up, hoping to get out of the country as soon as possible. But more concerned for those who will be left behind. Uh, so thoughts with everybody there. Not such a good night in Brazil last night either. So Brazil and Argentina were due to play in a World Cup qualifying match. And chaos ensued. So you'll remember that all Premier League teams decided to block their South American internationals from going to play in these international uh, matches. Except for two clubs. Tottenham and Villa. Tottenham let Romero and Lo Celso go, and Villa let Martinez and Buendia go. So they travelled to Brazil, where they proceeded to lie on their visa forms and say that they had not been in the UK in the previous two weeks to circumvent the COVID rules. This was discovered before the game. And there was news before the game that Argentina would not be able to play these players because they hadn't done the necessary quarantine period that is is mandated in Brazil when someone travels from a country like the UK that's on their red list. The players didn't fill this out. So they were to do this. They were to quarantine. Instead, Argentina went ahead with the game, started... Martinez, Romero, and Lo Celso. Four minutes into the game, police and health officials storm the field. It is a mental scene. It's not like they waited for a break in play. They just rush the field and begin trying to take said players into custody to make them quarantine. 
this goes on and on and on, and eventually the game has to be abandoned. Now, the governing body have come out and said this is Brazil's fault. Argentina have come out and said, well, you know, why did you let us start the game if you weren't going to let us finish the game? You would logically have to ask, if they were going to allow them to start the game, why not just let them play the game and then, you know, either deport them from the country or whatever it is you need to do afterwards. They'd already been in close contact with the other Argentine players, with the referee and the other assist, the other officials, and with the Brazilian team. So if they were going to pass any potential COVID they might be carrying on to anybody, they'd already been close contact enough to do this. Now, what happens from here, I don't know. We already know that these four players are going to have to go through a mandatory quarantine when they return to the UK. But how soon will that be? Will the Brazilian government allow them to travel out of the country straight away? Maybe not. Can they legally hold them? I don't know. They could arrest them. That would be a bit a bit harsh, a little bit a little bit of a step too far. So that's one to keep an eye on. It's not an ideal situation. But look, Spurs and Villa have nobody to blame only themselves. If they've just if they just stood with the rest of the league on this issue and said we're not letting you go, simple as that, it would have been fine. Yes, those players might have missed this weekend's game, but such is life. Liverpool may well be without Fabinho and Allison this weekend. Manchester United could be without Fred. But they'll deal with it and they'll move on. Man City without Ederson, etc., etc. The, the clubs will deal with it for one game. For these teams, well, they could miss their players for th- three or four games, depending on what happens now. So I think in future, and when the October international break comes along, the thing to do will very clearly be to stand firm together and block the players from going. Other games the weekend, Ireland played out a mighty 1-1 draw with the terrifying Azerbaijan. Uh, Shane Duffy with an 87th minute goal to rescue Ireland. Shane Duffy is Ireland's top scorer, I think, over the last five years with six goals, which tells you how well our national team is doing. Uh, France drew 1-1 with Ukraine. Denmark beat the Faroe Islands 1-0. Scotland beat Moldova 1-0. The Netherlands beat Montenegro 4-0. Croatia beat Slovakia. Russia beat Cyprus. Portugal beat Qatar in a friendly. Seems well worth your while playing a friendly at this point. Couldn't have left the players have a day off or anything. Uh, Germany beat Armenia 6-0. Romania beat Liechtenstein 2-0. Spain beat Georgia 4-0. Very impressive performance by the Spanish team, who've been a little bit hit and miss and obviously had loss for the first time in 28 years in a, a World Cup qualifier. So good for them to bounce back. Georgia, not obviously not the best opposition in the world, but good for Spain to get back on track. Wales beat Belarus 3-2 at Gareth Bale hat-trick. Um, two penalties and a 93rd minute winner. Belarus will feel a little bit unlucky having been 2-1 up, then going 2-2 and then losing so late in the game. 
Uh, Poland put seven past San Marino, as they should. England beat Andorra 4-0. Two from Jesse Lingard, a penalty from Harry Kane. And Bakayo Saka with a goal on the 85th minute, which was nice to see. Good for him. Uh, Patrick Bamford getting his first start was delighted for him to get that. Jude Bellingham, I thought, was the best player on the pitch by a substantial margin. The England midfield did not work at all. Jordan Henderson, very poor in midfield. Trent Alexander-Arnold just looking completely out of place in midfield. Um, that hopefully it's not a midfield we see again. Trent Henderson, Bellingham. It, it didn't work. It's not going to work. I'd quite if he wants to play a midfield three. I'd quite like to see Bellingham, Rice, and Phillips. Now you'll say there's no creativity in that, and I don't necessarily disagree. But Phillips is an excellent passer of the ball, and Rice's all-round ability, but mostly that power and ability to break into the box, I think can be very problematic. If you play Trent at right back and, say, Luke Shaw at left back and allow them to bomb forward and attack, you'll still have your solidity at the back with two centre-backs, nominally Stones and, and Maguire, most likely. And then you can play three attackers. You'll have Kane, you'll have Sterling. And then I think that third one should be Sancho, but it's currently Jack Grealish, and that's fine. Phil Foden will be an option there as well. I think that's a really strong English eleven. Months back, I did a podcast about the lack of the great English midfielder or the death of the great English midfielder. And you talked, you know, we talked over Gerard Lampard, Scholes, Gascoigne, players like that, Brian Robson, real driving forces in midfield, guys that could put a team on their back and carry them to a win, and how that had gone away. The best English midfielder over the past 10 years is Jordan Henderson. He's a very average midfield player. But Declan Rice, while overhyped, I mean, he's not an £80 million player, but he is a very good player. He's a very good holding midfielder. He's not great. He's not world class. But he's a very good holding midfielder. Jude Bellingham is the biggest English talent to come along in central midfield, probably since Gascoigne. Now, you can look at Wiltshire as well, different type of player, not the same type of all-rounder, but Wiltshire, obviously the injuries kind of spoiled his career. Immensely gifted, but Wiltshire would have needed a Bellingham in with him. Gerard, I don't think, was seen as this level of prospect at the same age. Certainly wasn't starting for, for Liverpool at the time, wasn't in the England squad at the time. Bellingham starts for Borussia Dortmund and is probably England's third midfielder in the two after Rice and Phillips, who were the first-choice pair. He's ahead of Jordan Henderson now, you would say. I think Phillips is hugely underrated. He spent, obviously, a long time in the lower leagues with Leeds in the Championship, but this guy just has it all. He's an excellent ball winner. He's a really good passer. He can drive forward with and without the ball. He can pick a pass in between the lines. He's got a tremendous shot. He's good at timing his runs into the box. And positionally, he's excellent from a defensive standpoint. He's also very good at the recycling role. I think England should be looking to build around the strengths of their three best players. And England's three best players are Harry Kane, Raheem Sterling and Trent Alexander-Arnold. 
Now, Kane is a goal scorer. Sterling is mostly a goal scorer. Trent is the one who can be a playmaker. And to do that, you need to put certain things in place to enable Trent to play like that. So why wouldn't you look at a midfield that will somewhat replicate what Liverpool's midfield has been? Bellingham in the Henderson role. Box to box, but more advanced. Rice in the Fabinho role, that sitting holding midfielder. And then Phillips in that in-between role. More defensive as an eight than the other side, but still with some freedom to get forward. Acting as a recycler in possession. Why wouldn't you try something like that? We know Luke Shaw is good going forward. Now, he hasn't fully developed going forward the way you would have hoped when he was at Southampton. And maybe if Chilwell can get himself back on track, Chilwell becomes the left back. And he's more similar to Andy Robertson. But Shaw is good going forward and very good defensively. The only question mark would be centre-back because of the lack of pace with Maguire. But Maguire's 28. Stones is 28. They're not long-term pieces. Neither is Kane, but you do see Kane carrying on a high level well into his 30s. Whereas Maguire kind of, kind of feels like the type of player who'll hit a wall and it'll be a very sharp drop for him. And with the likes of Konza, Tamori, Gwehi and Godfrey, England have, and Joe Gomez if he gets back to his best, England have pacey young centre-backs with very high ceilings that they can look to build around. You play Sterling in that right-sided role, similar enough to Salah in that likes to play narrow, likes to get goals, can work out to in or into out. The other two are obviously different. Kane is more a goal scorer than Firmino, but he has the all-round game, not the off-ball stuff, not the pressing, but his build-up play, his link play, everything like that is brilliant. You get Sancho in the left in that Mane role. Why wouldn't you look to do something like that? England don't have the players to play like Manchester City. But they do have the players to play like Liverpool. And Southgate has shown multiple times a willingness to change his approach. Now, in big games, he always resorts back to that you know, deep block, uber defensive nonsense. But wouldn't it be just fun to see England go out and play a really high tempo, aggressive type of game, get numbers forward, build through their best players, get their best players on the pitch. And I do think they could do that if they went Bellingham, Rice and Phillips in midfield and played Trent at right back where he belongs. Sterling, Kane and one up front, that's absolutely fine. You know I'm not a fan of Pickford, but he doesn't have to be the goalkeeper. There are other options. They're not great options, but there are other options. It would just be interesting to see England do something like that. That's all I'm saying. Um, given it's the international break, obviously there's no club games to go through, so I thought this week what we would do is maybe start doing some rankings. So ranking the 20 Premier League managers and the 20 Premier League goalkeepers for today. 
Wednesday, I think we'll, what we'll do is we'll do right back, left back, centre back, and holding midfielders. Then we'll do kind of central and attacking midfielders, right wingers, strikers, and left wingers on Thursday. Uh, the reason to not do any tomorrow, Tuesday, is tomorrow will be part two of the summer transfer window review with Kevin DeVries. So part one is available right now on the EPL Roundtable feed. So on whatever podcast provider you're with, just search EPL Roundtable and the latest edition is myself and Kev discussing Arsenal Truth and Leicester, what they did, what they could have done and giving them a grade on their business this summer. Uh, and then tomorrow we'll start with Liverpool and run through the Wolves. So that's part two. So that's tomorrow. Um, and then Wednesday, we get back and doing some rankings. Thursday, do some rankings and some questions. And then Friday, Mr. Drinkle will join me to do a, uh, a preview and prediction pod for the weekend. So uh, top 20 Premier League managers. There is obviously only 20, but I thought I'd rank them. I did this last year. I uh, got a little bit of criticism for some of them, but it, these are my rankings. They're not your rankings. You can rank them whatever way you like. Uh, I'm going to rank them whatever way I want. Uh, so... I think there's four tiers of managers. And I'll give you my tiers as I rank them. But I think there's a top three, then a group of seven. Sorry, then a group of eight. Then I've got a group of five and then a group of four. So the top three, I've got Pep first. I think Pep is the best manager in the league. Just ahead of Klopp, I think it's it's razor thin. But I think I'd go Pep. Tomorrow I'd probably go Klopp. But for today I'll go Pep. Klopp too. It's a great success at Liverpool. You want to see him repeat it though. You want to see Liverpool again challenge for the titles. Or you might not. I do. Um, and hopefully you know, bring more silverware to the club. Number three is Thomas Tuchel. And while it may seem early to have him so high. The guy won a Champions League last season having taken over a team that were destined for mid-table, he also finished fourth. And again, they were destined for mid-table when he took over. He has implemented a brilliant defensive scheme. We know he's a very talented attack-minded coach. We saw that at Dortmund and at PSG. What he's doing here is the evolution of Thomas Tuchel, putting in place a brilliant defensive structure that is... I would say the best in the league. I think his defensive record or Chelsea's defensive record since he took, took over speaks to that, especially in the Premier League. So they are the top three in my view, Pep, Klopp and Tuchel. The next tier then, I've got Marcelo Bielsa, uh, number four. I'm factoring in body of work as well as his time at Leeds, but I think what he's done at Leeds has been incredible. Take over a team that was mid-table in the championship, immediately turn them into one of the best teams in the championship. They ran out of steam that first year. It's possible that would have happened the second year because he demands so much and that maybe COVID did help them with that break. But they would go on and win the championship in his second year. Comes into the Premier League, finishes ninth, and a record points total for a newly promoted team in their first season. So I think that's incredibly impressive 
And again, body of work. You look at his time back to Newell's Olds boys, his time with the Argentine national team, with Chile, and obviously with the likes of uh, Athletic Bilbao as well. I, I think body of work puts him fourth. Rafa Benitez, for me, is fifth. Rafa's overall body of work, you could argue, is more impressive than, than Bielsa's, but I'm also factoring in the here and now. And Rafa's been out of the Premier League for a little while. He's not the manager he was. If Rafa was still 02 to 09 Rafa, I would argue he would be third on this list, but he's not. Like with players, Rafa has declined. But he's still very good. Tactically, he sets his team up really well. He's good on the training ground. He's a very intelligent coach. He plans well. Champions League winner, two-time Europa League winner, two-time La Liga winner, FA Cup winner in the Premier League, in England, obviously. Did a really good job at Newcastle, despite what Richard Keyes might tell you. Uh, I hope Richard Keyes is no longer following Everton. I hope he's had the conviction of his own words and he's decided to just bin off Everton entirely. I know they weren't his first choice team. He supports some lower league team, I think. But Everton were kind of his by proxy Premier League team, probably down to the fact that he hates Liverpool. But um, he, he said he would be done with, with that club. I think Andy Gray said the same as well. Andy Gray, obviously, former Everton player, tremendous player for them. So I hope they followed through on that and neither of them are supporting Everton anymore and not enjoying the fact that Everton have been quite good this season under Mr. Benitez. I've got Brendan Rodgers in sixth. He obviously did very well at Swansea. He did pretty well at Liverpool, thanks to Luis Suarez. When Suarez wasn't going nuclear on the Premier League, Rodgers was on the verge of getting sacked uh, before Suarez took off and then did get sacked once Suarez had left. Um, but did well at Celtic, failed in Europe miserably, but great domestic success. And look, he won an FA Cup last year with Leicester. He's bottled at the end of the season twice. That's undeniable that he has bottled the end of the season twice. But he did it at Swansea. He did it at Liverpool. It's what he does. Um, but he did win an FA Cup last year, and that has to count for something. So I've got Brendan Rodgers, six, just ahead of Sean Dyche. Dyche, for me, is the most underrated manager in Europe. Burnley are a tiny club with a tiny budget, and what he does each year just to keep them in the division is miraculous. When you consider he's finished in the top half with them twice and brought them into Europe once, that's outstanding. Sean Dyche, for me, number seven. David Moyes, number eight. For me, manager of the season last year, worked a miracle with West Ham, a West Ham team that had no business even being in the top half of the league. He gets them to sixth in Europa League football. Obviously, tremendous time at Everton. Didn't win anything, but again, working with a very, very tight budget for most of his time there, working in the shadow of his neighbours, keeping them competitive. They did, they did have a couple of bad seasons, but... Overall, I think he did very well at Everton. I do laugh at the if For those of you that seen the famous Taft's Tavern tribute to David Moyes, a decade of success at Everton for a manager who proves you don't need trophies to be a winner, but he is a winner. You do need trophies to prove you are a winner. That's kind of how this game works. But Moyes is a very good manager. He's gotten United 
Real Sociedad and Sunderland out of his system. He's done well twice now at West Ham. I expect him to be top half this season. I think Moyes, for me, number eight. Uh, I've gone Nuno Espirito Santo at nine. Did very well at Wolves, but said it early last season. It felt like it was coming towards the end. I don't think Nuno's the type of manager you can have long term. I think he's three years and then you want to move him on. I think he stayed four years at Wolves and that fourth year proved one year too long. So Nuno's a short-term manager, but he is a good manager. He's not an elite manager, but he gets results and he turned things around quickly. And he puts in place a pretty good defensive system. At Wolves, he was let down by individuals. At Spurs, if given another season after this one, I think we'll see Spurs become one of the better defensive teams in the league. They get more Romero's in, they're going to be special defensively. Um, at number 10, I've got Ralph Hasenhutl. He needs to show something more this season, though. He can't have half a season of disaster like he did last season and with four months of disaster in his first full season. Ralph needs to put together a consistent year. Unfortunately for Ralph, I do have concerns about that squad Lack of depth in attack, lack of depth in midfield. Maybe a little bit of quality lacking up front as well. I think he's better than what we've seen at Southampton, though. I think he's better than Southampton. I think he's capable of going on to bigger clubs. We've seen what he's done in the past at Leipzig. It may just be that I'm a little bit too Team Ralph that I've put him so high, but I do think he's very good. The last one in this this tier, then, is Graham Potter. Um, I've been a fan since he was in Sweden. I think he's very good tactically, very good developmental coach. I think Brighton have let him down now two summers in a row, failing to get that number nine he needs in. I do think he's a little bit too sentimental. I think he can be a little bit drawn to dross. And he can overplay them. He did it last season. He started this season doing the same thing. But I do think he's excellent. So I've got Graham Potter, 11th, but bottom of Tier 2. Tier 3 then, and 12th overall, I've got Dean Smith. This is a season where Dean Smith is under a bit of pressure because Wes Edens, the owner of Aston Villa, or one of the two owners of Aston Villa, is a very ambitious guy who is ruthless. Now, to look outside the world of football, he also owns the Milwaukee Bucks. Mike Budenholzer is the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. And for the previous two seasons, before the last one, the Bucks finished with the best record in the regular season and then failed in the playoffs. This past season, they went real big. They made a massive trade to get a guy in called Drew Holiday, kind of mortgaged their future. They gave huge contracts to Giannis Antetokounmpo, who's their best player, one of the five best players in the league, um, and to Drew Holiday to, to lock him down long term. Budenholzer was under massive pressure to, to perform in the playoffs. And by performing the playoffs, he had to win at least the Eastern Conference and get to the finals. That was basically his mandate. So they took a step back in the regular season. I think they finished with the third best record in the East this past season. So they were number three seeded in the playoffs. They get through the first round, they sweep Miami, fine. They play the Brooklyn Nets in the second round. 
and it starts off and looks like they're just going to get absolutely wiped off the off the off the floor. Um, there was talk at that time that Budenholzer could be fired if they lost to the Brooklyn Nets. Now, for those that don't know, the Brooklyn Nets have two of the five best and three of probably the 15 best players in the NBA. They're a super team put together with ludicrous, at ludicrous expense, completely mortgaged the future, but they're just win now. They were expected to walk through the playoffs and dominate everybody, bar maybe the Lakers with LeBron James. They suffer some injuries. The Bucs come back and win the series. Then they go into the conference finals. They're playing the Atlanta Hawks, who are kind of an upstart, not really expected to get this far. They'd beaten the Philadelphia 76ers in their conference semifinal, which was a, a shock. And the pressure was once again on Budenholzer. If they don't win, he's going to be gone. So he's getting to the conference final, which is the equivalent, say, of getting to a Champions League semifinal. And the pressure on him is, if you don't win, you're gone. That's where Wes Edens is. He wants winning. He wants success. He has backed Dean Smith to the hilt. 100 plus net spend the previous two summers. This summer, again, they spent 100 million, but they balanced it out by selling Grealish. Dean Smith has to kick on again this season. Survive the first year, establish the second year. You've now got a challenge for Europe. That's the marker on Dean Smith this year. If he doesn't do it, he'll find himself looking for a new job real quick. I think he's a good manager. I don't know if he is that top half caliber manager yet. I do think he's got a top half caliber team, bar one player. But I do think it's a very good team they've built there over the last couple of years. I think he is capable of taking them into Europe. I hope he is anyway. So we'll see. But I have him 12th right now. Daniel Farka, I have 13th. I think he's done really well at Norwich. No money to spend. Best players constantly being sold out from under him. He's very, very lucky to work with Stuart Weber, who I think is one of the best in the business. But he has absolutely run away with the championship twice and the championship is an incredibly tough division but he's run away with it twice so i i think daniel farka is 13 for me bruno laga and again i'm largely going body of work i'm basing this on his time at benfica i was very impressed in the first season obviously not so much in the second season but i do think he's a very good attacking coach and what we've seen already wolves are very entertaining to watch very entertaining. They've been very unfortunate this year. If Adama Traore could could finish, Wolves would have probably drawn with Leicester, beaten United, and maybe gotten a draw against Spurs. But that's what they deserve. They should have between five and seven points now. Instead, they have zero. They've been very unfortunate. Um, but I do think he's a decent manager. 15, I've got Ollie. Now, I think he's a PE teacher personally, but he did finish second last year and third the year before. What I will say is he'd want to finish second last year and third the year before, considering the amount of money that he spent, considering the fact that United didn't have many injury issues last season. I've seen United fans flow, oh, we had players missing all these games. You're including Phil Jones, who would not have played in a fit. So remove him, 
and your numbers much more normal. In fact, it's better than normal. The only major injury you suffered last year was Phil Jones, who's not really a player for you at all. Um, I think Ollie has to be under huge pressure. I think his seat is the hottest in the Premier League right now. They've just gone out and spent massive money on Sancho, Varane and Cristiano. By the way, whoever runs the United Twitter feed obviously knows that their fans are largely simpletons because just the constant tweets, of it, not all the fans, obviously, but there's a, a large group of their teenage fans who probably aren't old enough to remember Cristiano at United because he left 12 years ago. He plays into that. Constant tweets about Cristiano that are absolutely meaningless. One over the weekend showing him standing over a free kick. It's clearly, obviously, uh, CGI'd, but it's very badly done, by the way. Um, standing over a free kick. Coming soon to the Premier League. Well, let's just delve into that for one minute. He's a dreadful free kick taker. Uh, that's the first thing to note. He scored one free kick from 72 efforts for Juventus over three seasons. At Real Madrid, for every 100 free kicks he took, he scored seven of them. And the bigger issue with Cristiano's free kicks is this. When you line up to take a free kick, ideally you want to accomplish one of two things. Either you score yourself or you hit the frame of the goal or force the goalkeeper into a save where it bounces back to a teammate who scores. Cristiano doesn't do that. He puts them in the stand. He puts them in the second row of the stand. The second tier of the stand, I should say. This guy is not a good free kick taker. He's an awful free kick taker. And what this compounds is the fact that United have a much better free kick taker in Bruno Fernandes. Bruno's one of the best free kick takers in the world. And you're going to take him off free kick duties to play into the ego of one of the worst free kick takers in world football. Let me say that again. One of the worst free kick takers in world football. You're going to put him on free kicks. And you're also going to take penalties off Bruno, which is going to be hilarious. And we're going to see Portuguese national team Bruno. And United fans are going to want him out of the team in six weeks. Um, anyway, Ollie's under massive pressure. I'm sorry, ending less than the title or the Champions League and Ollie has to go. He, he has to go. Look how much money they've spent. Look how much money they've spent. They have backed him endlessly. The style of football is not good. They're dreadful against teams who play a low block. They're very open against the counter-attack. I, I just don't see what it is that Ollie's done. Like, you watch United play, there's no established patterns of play anywhere. United's game plan is give it to Pogba and hope he can unlock a defence with a pass or give it to Bruno and hope he creates something magic either with a shot or a pass. That's it. That's literally the game plan. Let's hope that one of these two fellas can do something. And unfortunately for United, while Bruno's very consistent and brilliant and has been since he joined them, 
he's about to lose most of what he's been able to do because Cristiano's in town. And the other guy, Pogba, turns up maybe five games a season. Baffling. Um, Ollie's got to be under pressure this year. I have him 15th. I've got Steve Bruce 16th. I just think if you give Steve Bruce any team in the league, he'll finish 12th to 15th, and that's what he'll do. You could give him this City team, and he'd finish 12th to 15th, or you could give him whoever, Norwich, Watford, whoever, 12th to 15th, probably more 15th with them. But that's what he does. He's a defensive-minded coach. Now, the team's not great defensively, but they're good at grinding results out, and he will grind out enough points to always keep a team in the division. Uh, I've got Thomas Frank in 17th. I think he's underachieved a little bit at Brentford in that they should have come up a year earlier. He's a very good tactical manager, but we're yet to see him against elite-level competition, and I want to see that before I go any higher with him. Promising for sure, but I want to see it against a high-level opposition. Uh, I've got Cisco at 18th. This is largely down to the fact that I don't know enough about him. There's not enough of a body of work. He had half a season at Watford, and he was, I think, Dinamo Tbilisi before that. It's very hard for me to judge something based on Georgian football. So I want to see more from Cisco. I liked what I saw last season, and the promotion was very impressive, but I still need to see more. Um, 19, I've got Arteta. I think we have enough evidence now to suggest he's not a very good manager. Uh, you look at everything. Tactically, Arsenal are very one-dimensional. There's no real plan B. And if plan A doesn't work, it's basically just give up and go home. You look at his squad management, not very good. You look at his man management, not very good. He's been given credit for the signing of Aaron Ramsdale, which tells me that his eye for a player, not very good. So I've got him 19th. And then I've got Vieira 20th. And with Vieira, it's purely because I don't know. Because Nice was a weird job for him. At the time, Nice was kind of in transition. He did okay there. But again, there was no real tactical game plan. His man management was said to be a little bit lacking. But he hasn't done anything in the Premier League yet. Now, what I saw against West Ham was a motivated team looking to fight and get a result. So that was that was impressive. But what I saw against Chelsea was a team just kind of give up. So I want to see more from Vieira. I have him 20th purely because I just don't know enough. Arteta should probably be 20th in fairness, but I've got him one step above because he did win an FA Cup and that does it does matter. So I've got him. Um, so that's it. Pep, Klopp, Tuchel, Bielsa, Benitez, Rogers, Dyche, Moyes, Nuno, Ralph, Potter, Smith, Farka, Laj, Solskjaer, Bruce, Frank, Cisco, Arteta, and Vieira. That is how I would rank the 20 Premier League managers at the moment. Goalkeeper-wise, then, and we'll do the goalkeepers before we go to our break. Um, again, I've gone 1 to 20. Now, I will say I've picked the best goalkeeper from each club. So not necessarily the guy who's currently starting, although I think in 19 situations it is the guy who's starting. And then in one situation, it's the guy who's currently on the bench, but is without doubt the better goalkeeper at the club. So top five, I think Alison Becker is the best keeper in, in the league, and I don't think it's close. 
I think Becker is in a level all to himself. I think as we get through this, we, we recognise it's a very weak class of goalkeepers in the Premier League. I've got Emmy Martinez second, who I do like. I think he's very, very good. Best keeper in the league last season. Villa got a steal at 20 million. Well done, Arsenal. I do like Emmy Martinez. I've got Eduard Mendy. Now, let me just say, the first two are the only two I look at and think, there's no real hole in your game. There's no real weakness. From here, there's weaknesses in all of these goalkeepers. Eduard Mendy. Really good shot stopper. Really athletic. Quick off his line. Can't kick off the ground. Doesn't always show good judgment when coming off his line. And can be a little bit flappy on crosses. But I still think he's third. I've got Ederson Ford. I think Ederson's best attribute as a goalkeeper is the ability to kick the ball. I think he makes too many errors because he's quite rash. But he is a good shot stopper. He's decent on crosses. But he's very rash. And that's a concern to me. But he's great with his feet. Um, I've got him fourth. Nick Pope in fifth. Solid, dependable, great shot stopper, except when he's playing Man City. Good on crosses. His flaw is he's dreadful with his feet. Simple as that. He's just dreadful with his feet. But if you're looking for a meat and potatoes goalkeeper, Nick Pope is as good as you'll find. Uh, number six, I've got David De Gea. Now, David De Gea pre-2018 would be number one or two on this list, without a shadow of a doubt. That David De Gea was brilliant. This David De Gea has regressed in all areas. Shot stopping, crosses, and his kicking ability. His concentration doesn't seem to be the same. He doesn't seem to be as motivated. He's lost that Superman edge that he had a few years ago. He's still capable of brilliance. You saw it against Wolves, the double save from Sice. We've seen it over the last couple of years. When he's on, he's still really good. The issue is those games don't come often enough for my liking. I've got Kasper Schmeichel in seventh. Kasper's never been great on crosses. He's a good shot stopper. He's a very good organizer. He's a decent kicker of the ball. But he is a little bit error prone. He's prone to just moments of, not madness. Madness would indicate that it's like a, you know, a huge error, but... He makes little errors that can be costly. Oftentimes he gets away with them and that's fine. But I do just, he's obviously he's now 34, 35. He is declining. He's, you know, he's, he's one of those goalkeepers who relied a lot on his athleticism and that's now on the wane. So he is declining. But he's still a good goalkeeper. I have him seventh. Hugo Lloris in eighth. Again, like De Gea, go back a few years, Lloris would be much higher on this list. But again, like Casper, he's a smaller goalkeeper. He relies a lot on his athleticism and that is on the wane. He's also error prone and his judgment is off and off. Some of the things he does when he has the ball at his feet are bizarre. World Cup final being one of them. I have him an eighth. Again, three, four years ago, he would have been top five without question, but I have him eighth now. I've got Alphonse Areola in ninth. I know he's not West Ham's first choice, but he is an excellent goalkeeper. Now, again, he's not perfect. There are flaws in his game. He's not particularly great on crosses. He can be a little bit flappy. He's not 
the quickest goalkeeper to come off his line at times. Sometimes he just flies off. It's like an instinct and it's brilliant. Sometimes it's like he thinks about things too much and hesitates. That's maybe what's held him back from fully realising his potential, but he's a tremendous shot stopper. So I've got him ninth. And Bernard Leno, 10th. And I'm not a Leno fan at all, but he is a very good shot stopper. He's not good on crosses. I don't like his judgment of the game. He's not a particularly good kicker of the ball. Um, but he is, I've got him 10th now, based largely on the fact that, I, I, as I said earlier, it's a very weak class of goalkeepers. I've got Dubravka 11th. Again, on the decline, age, injuries, always has an error in him. Always. That's the knock on him. Really good shot stopper. Good organiser. Decent with his feet, not spectacular, but a decent all-round keeper. But he is just error prone. I have him 11th. I've got Pickford 12th, and it largely says more about what's below him than, than anything else. He's good with his feet, not great the way he's made out to be. He's a very springy goalkeeper. He's very athletic. He can be a, a really impressive shot stopper, but he's just far too error prone, and he is atrocious on crosses. He is atrocious under any kind of pressure. So uh, I've got Pickford 12th. Uh, Melier, I've got 13th. I think he's got the potential to be top five, but he's still very young and he still makes young goalkeeper errors, positional errors, footwork errors. His kicking can be haphazard. I think that the potential is there for it all to improve. The shot stopping is already there. Judge crosses, I'd question, but that's largely down to having a catastrophe in front of him when it comes to dealing with, with the high ball. So I've got him 13th, but I do think in, say, two years, we could well be talking about him being borderline top five. Um, Vincente Guaita, I've got next. I like him as a shot stopper. I like him as an organizer. I don't like him coming for crosses. I don't particularly like him with the ball at his feet. but. He's more reliable than a lot of others. Well, the others below him in that he doesn't make as many mistakes. Um, I went back and forth between McCarthy and Fraser Forster as to who I think is better. And I, I actually just don't know. But I've got Southampton written down as 15th because I think they're both decent goalkeepers, but both equally flawed. Forster's brilliant on crosses because he's a giant human being. He's a good shot stopper at those balls that are hard to get, but anything near near and close to him in by his feet, he can really struggle in that regard, and he's not particularly good at kicking the ball when it's rolled back to him. Uh, McCarthy's not good with his feet. He's a better... He's got better reflexes, I would say, than um, McCarthy, but I do think... When he comes off his line, I just get I get worried. Um, so I've got Southampton as 15. Tim Krul, 16th. This is more based on what he's done than what he is now, because I do think he has declined quite a bit. Uh, good shot stopper, not a great one. Good on crosses, not great on them. Decent kicker of the ball, but very one-sided. Footwork can be poor. Judgment can be poor and will always throw in at least one a season. So I've got him 16th. Robert Sanchez at 17th. He's still young, 24. He's got very little experience. I think one season in the Premier League. He's a talented shot stopper. 
he's okay on crosses, but there's not enough body work yet for me to put him any higher. David Rea, I'm just not a fan. I think he's too error prone. Good shot stopper. Very good shot stopper. But you look at his positioning sometimes and you just wonder why is he standing there when every other keeper in the world would be standing, you know, two yards away from there. Um, I think he gambles a little bit too much. He's a little bit over-aggressive for me when it comes to trying to dominate the box. So I've got him 18th. Daniel Bachman of uh, of Watford have got 19th. It's not that he's necessarily bad at anything. I just don't think he's very good at anything. He's just kind of average across the board. And and he's error-prone. Like I, I just wouldn't be massively keen. And then Jose Sa at 20th, because I just think he's awful. Genuinely, I don't see a redeeming feature in him. I said all last season, Rui Patricio is declining. You can see it in his game. He's not as athletic anymore. He's not as quick off his line. He can't get to some of the balls he used to get to. They sold him and they bought this fella and he's awful. He is the worst keeper in the league. Aaron Ramsdale, I'm very sorry. You've been the worst keeper in the league for the past two years but you're no longer the worst keeper in the league. And here's where I go one further with, with Jose Saar, right? Spurs have Galini. I would take him over. I would take Fabianski. I would take Dean Henderson. I would take Kepa. I don't know about Quevin Henderson. Quevin Kelleher, rather. Uh, I would take Zach Steffen. I think I'd take Danny Ward. I'd take Ben Foster. I'd take the other Southampton keeper. I'd take Jack Butland. I'd take Freddie Woodman. And I'd take Ramsdale. I'd take 12. Is that 12? Backup keepers in the league over him. I don't think he's a... Carl Darlow as well, absolutely, Guy. I don't think Jose Sa is in the top 30 goalkeepers in the league. And we've only got 20 teams. I think he's that bad. Genuinely. I think he's that bad. So, it is what it is. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll run through the gossip from over the weekend and get done for the day. See you tomorrow. Right, welcome back. So, uh, we're going to run through the gossip from the weekend and get ourselves out of here for today. Uh, Wolves want to make it down with Traore, the highest paid player. Highly unlikely. Um... Manchester United still want Kieran Trippier. Could have had him all summer. Real Madrid prepared seven contracts to negotiate with Kylian Mbappe as they aim to sign the French forward before the transfer deadline, but the Spanish giants are optimistic he will join them next year. He most likely will. And what I would say is that I think some of the stories that come out about offers from Real Madrid were just propaganda aimed at making Real look good and big and powerful and making PSG look silly. Uh, that's based on what I read from The Athletic this week. Um, Mbappe's failure to agree a move from PSG this summer saw his former junior club, AS Bondi, 
miss out on a compensation fee of more than €2 million, Euros, that's really, really harsh. Really, really harsh. You would imagine... Now, I don't know anything about A.S. Bondi. Um, couldn't tell you a thing about them. Let's have a look. It's a, commu- it's a community in the northeastern suburbs of Paris. William Salibas from the same area. Anyone else that we would know? Anyway, um, and he was in there at their that club, the same club. So that's actually something I didn't know. Anyway, uh, you would imagine that two million euro would probably run that club for ten years. So hopefully someone makes that right. That's that's just that doesn't sit well with me at all. Um, France midfielder Eduardo Camavinga convinced Rand to let him join Real Madrid this summer, despite. PSG making more more lucrative moves. Again, this is Real Madrid propaganda coming out. AS, glorified Real Madrid fanzine. Um, PSG did not submit a formal bid for Cristiano, despite holding discussions over a move for the 26-year-old. So, it's come out that United will pay uh, $15 as a fee and then $8 in add-ons. And the $15 fee will be paid in five $3 installments. Which, number one, tells you that United had no money left this summer. And number two number two says that Juventus were absolutely desperate to get rid of him. Absolutely desperate to get rid of him. Because Juventus are in massive financial trouble. They're not going to go bust. They're not in Barcelona situation. But they are in major financial bother. And yet they're willing just to take just three million for a guy they paid this, this summer, I should say. For a guy they paid a hundred million for three years ago, fifteen million for a hundred million pound signing, three million this summer. They were desperate to be rid of him and not have to pay him anymore. Uh, Juventus want to build a team around Paolo Dybala. I mean, that's that's fairly common knowledge. I don't think that's news. Jesse Lingard turned down the chance to join West Ham on a permanent basis. West Ham, it worked out better for them. They got Flasic, he's a better player. Uh, Zenit St. Petersburg, Petersburg, Iran striker, Sardar Ousman has claimed Tottenham were among a number of clubs, including Roma, Leon, and Bayer Leverkusen, attempted to sign him in the summer. I do like him. He's a good player. Um, he would have made sense for Spurs to back up to Kane as well. Inter Milan are among the clubs interested in Bern Leno, next, who is expected to leave Arsenal on a free next summer when his contract expires. Um, is his contract up next summer? It is. Oh, that's magnificent. That's magnificent. So they paid the guts of 20 million for him, and they're going to let him leave on a free next summer, likely along with Lacazette, who they paid 46 million for. What, what a club! What a club! Um, Barcelona will attempt to sign Danny Olmo from RB Leipzig in January, having already agreed a five-year contract in principle. You best find a big bag of money somewhere, because otherwise you're not signing signing anybody. Some of the Barcelona squad reacted with joy following Antoine Griezmann's return to Atletico Madrid. This sounds like nonsense. This sounds like something that's been made up to have a dig 
at Griezmann by Diario Sport, whoever they are. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say that that's nonsense. Uh, Griezmann's always been well known as a popular teammate. Uh, Tomeo Bakayoko hopes to stay with AC Milan after a second loan stint. Well, perform and they might keep you. I don't know why they signed him because they already had a ton of midfielders, but it is what it is. Um, USA defender Cameron Carter Vickers rejected a deadline day move from Tottenham to Torino before securing a late loan to Celtic. I really hope he does well at Celtic. Um, Hatton Benarfa has been linked to the move to Rapid Bucharest of Romania. He's a free agent having left Bordeaux in the summer. He's 34. I thought he would have been older. He was so talented. He just he had such a bad attitude. And then he obviously had the bad leg break up at, up at Celtic. Um, Celtic have set their sights on signing Britain's tallest outfield player, Kylan Hudlin. He's a six foot nine forward who plays nationally. Isn't this the kid that was linked with, with City during the summer? It's bizarre. Uh, David Beckham's son, Romeo, has signed with Fort Lauderdale CF, who play in the third tier of the American football pyramid. Uh, is that the same club that Phil Neville's son plays for? I, I believe it is. So they will probably act as some sort of feeder club to, yeah, Harvey Neville. That's where he is. Um Crazy. They'll probably act as some sort of feeder club to Inter Miami, and in return for that and the money they'll get from that, they'll take on, you know, the sons of, of former footballers who, you know, probably wouldn't make it otherwise. Um, that was Saturday. Sunday. Here's some nonsense from the Sunday Mirror. Mohamed Salah has demanded 500000 a week to sign a new contract at Liverpool. No, he hasn't. Absolute nonsense. Aston Villa will look to make a move for Weston McKenney. Well, the transfer window just closed, so it's unlikely. Maybe in January, though. PSG spoke to Cristiano. Everybody spoke to his agent. Because George Mendes offered him to everybody, trying desperately to find a new home for him. Romelu Lukaku has said Inter Milan got him out of a deep hole after he left Manchester United. That's not actually what he said. He said Inter pulled him out of the, the stuff. The stuff. And by the stuff, he was referring to Manchester United. That's not what he said. Um, Manchester City will quadruple Phil Foden's wages as they look to tie him down to new contract. Phil Foden's not leaving City at any point, so you know it, it, you don't have to rush with that one. Uh, Real Madrid have been tacking, tracking Eduardo Camavinga for three years before signing him from Ren this summer. Uh, well, everybody's known about Eduardo Camavinga for three years, so... You're neither special nor uh, well in the know. You have just literally gone on the internet and seen the hype about him. Um, Tottenham's hopes of signing Adama Traore in January have hit a, hit, have hit a wall after he uh, opened contra talks with current, current club Wolves. I, I, I just don't see how he fits at Spurs. I really don't. Former Arsenal manager Arsene Wenger says the economic power of the Premier League makes it inevitable that Norway striker Erling Haaland will leave Dortmund for a club in England with Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea and Manchester City all linked. Real Madrid and Bayern also want a prolific forward. Well, let's talk about economic power. The three clubs in world football 
who make the most money are Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Bayern Munich. United are fourth. So if you want to talk about economic power, let's let's factor them in. Bayern 100% want him because they need a Lewandowski replacement, and he's their top choice. Real definitely want him and are rumoured to already have an agreement with Mino. And Barca would love him, but they're too, they're far too deep in the stuff. The same stuff that Lukaku was in at United, they're in that, and they're unlikely to have any money. Uh, you can rule out United, he's not going to go there. You can rule out Chelsea, they just signed Lukaku. You can rule out Liverpool, because buying him would involve, well, you know, buying him and spending money. City are the only club that could get him, and I don't think... I don't think Mino would send him to work with Pep because Mino Raiola hates Pep Guardiola. And I don't mean he hates him in the way you might say, oh, I hate mustard or I hate mushrooms. He hates him as if Pep spat in the face of his mother. That's how much Mino hates Pep. And it all dates back to Zlatan. So it's 10 years old and Mino holds a grudge. Grudges don't lessen over time with Mino, quite the opposite. And Mino is the type that if he's got a player with your club and you treat that player badly, Mino will never deal with you again. Never. So I don't think Mino is going to allow Haaland to go to City. Haaland will go to Real Madrid is is my guess. Manchester City turned down the chance to sound Seoul. I doubt it. Um, signing Neymar from Barcelona has cost Paris Saint-Germain $489 million in transfer fee and wages. There's just no way that's true. He wasn't earning four... No, there's just no way it's true. Now, when you, even when you factor in signing on bonuses and agent fees, there's just no way that's true because the fee was $200 million or $197 million. So they're suggesting that Neymar has then earned $300 million in wages in, in four years. It's just not. There's no possible way he has. That's, that's nonsense. Uh, former Bayern Munich and France midfielder Frank Ribery will sign with Salernitana this weekend. Um, I love that he's continuing playing. I love that he's still playing. And I love that he's playing in Italy as well. It's so much fun to watch a Fiorentina. Tottenham and Chelsea have been put on red alert after Frank Kessie turned down a new contract at AC Milan. That's, he's probably the reason that, che- that Milan have brought in Bakayoko. If they can't keep Kessie, they'll have back Yoko in. Kessie's really good. Uh, whoever gets him will be getting a quality player. Barcelona president Joan Laporte has complete confidence in Ronald Koeman and no plans to sack him. The reason he's no plans to sack him is because he can't afford to. Uh, Keen Gardner and Everton boss Rafa Benitez has encouraged his team to ditch gaming and go outside more. Right. Uh, finally... Liverpool are continuing to talk with Mo Salah's representatives over a new deal for the 29-year-old. Just get it done. That's all you need to do. Get it done. Thomas Tuchel is is keen for the club to sign Leroy Sané. It's from the Express. I wouldn't put anything in it. Uh, Tottenham are prepared to use 
want away French midfielder Tangai Endembele as a make weight in a swap deal for Frank Kessie. Now, I could see this being logical. However, what I will say is this. Spurs spent £60 million on Endembele, who's got like three years left on his deal. Kessie's out of contract next summer. So his value will be very, very low in January. He'll have six months left on his deal. Why wouldn't you just try and sign him to a pre-contract and then try and sell Endembele separately and make a ton of money back on him? Even if you don't get what you paid back from, you're getting Kessie on a Bosman. So, it, you know. Anyway, uh, Everton's midfielder Hamas Rodriguez has been linked with a move to Istanbul. Besiktas, with the Turkish club, keen to sign him, and I would imagine Everton very keen for him to leave. Sevilla boss Julen Lopetegui says the La Liga club did not deliberately block Jules Kunde from moving to Chelsea, but decided it was better for him to stay. Look, they they stood to the price, and he has to accept it. He signed the contract with the buyout clause. If you don't like it, don't sign the contract. It's as simple as that. Arsenal's Egyptian midfielder, Mohamed Elneny, continues to be linked to the move to Besiktas, but the 29-year-old's wage demands are said to have seen a move collapse. Yeah, I mean, he's probably on decent money at Arsenal. He probably wants to keep decent money, but Besiktas are, are good payers. Look who they've signed over the last four or five years. Lots of lads coming towards the end, looking for that big contract, and, and they've done it. Um... Ajax director of football Mark Overmars has said Cameroon goalkeeper Andre Onana, who is wanted by Arsenal, could leave on a free next summer. He's he's really good. I don't think Arsenal will sign him now having bought Ramsdale, but if they're smart, they will, and he'll be first choice in Ramsdale. He'll be the backup. Uh, Italian champions Inter Milan could also make a move for Onana as a successor to Samir Handanovic. Yeah, I mean, at 37, soon to be 38, you'd imagine Handanovic is close to the end. Uh, PSG are hopeful Kylian Mbappe will sign a new contract. PSG live in a planet that's not inhabited by the rest of us. Uh, Barcelona boss Ronald Koeman has been told by Joan Laporte to use to make more use of Ricky Puig and Samuel Mtiti. If anyone saw, if anyone saw Koeman sending Mtiti out to to warm up with no intention of putting him on, just so he'd get booed by the fans, what a disgrace! Miralem Pjanic absolutely hammered Koeman in his interview when he signed for Besiktas. So this is a pattern of behaviour. We saw it at Valencia years back. We saw it with certain players with the Dutch national team. We saw it at Everton. What he did to Omar Nias was disgusting. He should have been fired for his treatment of that player, if nothing else. What he did to Omar Nias, a guy who was really, really happy to be at Everton, like really genuinely wanted to be at Everton, was so thrilled to have gotten a big move to a Premier League club. Always hardworking, very popular with his teammates, no trouble at all. And what what Koeman did to him was a disgrace. He is, I I just think Ronald Koeman might just be a, a prick. He's a bully. And what he's badly needed for many years is someone to punch him in his face. And hopefully, before he finishes managing, someone will turn around, hole off, and punch him clean in the face. Samuel Umtiti might be a contender to do that. You wouldn't like a punch off him. He's got hands like shovels. Um, Huddersfield's 22-year-old English midfielder, Lewis O'Brien, who was wanted by Leeds in the summer, is in discussions with the Terriers about a new contract. 
Uh, I wouldn't tie yourself down for too long, Lewis, because, you know, you've got Premier League clubs coming looking at you. You're clearly not getting back to the Premier League with Huddersfield. So I would say, and he is out of contract next summer, so I would suggest Huddersfield need to sell him in January. Arsenal face potentially face a potentially significant loss after failing to sell Eddie and Ketia in the summer, with the former England under 21 international stalling on a contract off from the Gunners, unable to commit to a free transfer to a foreign club in January. Yeah, Arsenal's decision to hold out for 20 million for a player who had one year left in his contract has proven nothing in the Premier League and uh, clearly doesn't want to be at the club anymore is absolutely bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. But, you know, well done, Arsenal. Congrats on running a steady ship, Edu. Uh, that is it for today, folks. That is the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Mr. Drinkle. I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.